Hello, I'm James Hurst, and this is SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and international affairs. This week, Spanish Boots on Gibraltar claims that the EU is threatening the territory's sovereignty. For us, it would just be absolutely unacceptable for every moment of every second of every day to think that there are Spanish law enforcement agents on the soil, the British soil of Gibraltar. Is your phone spying on you? We'll find out why it might be. Plus, could the next global conflict start with an attack in space? You're basically blinding your opponent by taking out space assets and they can't communicate, they can't see, we'd be deaf, dumb and blind, essentially. And the Dambusters pilot, who was determined a key part of wartime history would not be forgotten. 21,000 Jews actually flew as part of the Royal Air Force in the Second World War, portraying the Jews not just as victims, but fighting back. Ever since the Brexit referendum back in 2016, the future of Gibraltar has been a huge bone of contention. It's a bit like the Northern Ireland issue. Brussels, to protect the integrity of the EU, either wants more checks at the border with Spain, or for the EU to be able to carry out checks at entry points to Gibraltar. That, they say, should enable the free flow of goods and people between Spain and the Rock. Now, these questions weren't addressed in the deal between the UK and EU signed last Christmas, but a few days later, there was an agreement on a framework for the future. Now, though, the EU has published what is essentially a set of preconditions for negotiations, and both the UK and Gibraltar are accusing the EU of moving the goalposts because this document says Spanish authorities, rather than EU agency, would be carrying out border checks on Gibraltar's territory. The Foreign Secretary has accused the European Commission of trying to undermine British sovereignty, but the European Commission Vice President Marasevkic says that's not the plan. By taking this first step, we are sending a positive signal to those living and working on either side of the border between Spain and Gibraltar. It is about cooperation in the region. It is not about sovereignty or jurisdiction. Gibraltar's Chief Minister Fabian Picardo has told me the EU knows that these proposals will never be accepted. There are many things wrong with the mandate, not least the suggestion that there would be Spanish police authorities in Gibraltar at the port and at the airport, which we have consistently said will never happen because we would certainly see that as undermining British sovereignty. We agreed with Spain that those functions would be discharged by Frontex so that there was an independent party that would be dealing with the responsibilities that would be the responsibilities of Spain as the Schengen member state, but Spain would not be on Gibraltar. So this is not going to fly. It's going to be negative for the whole region, not just for Gibraltar, but we're planning what to do in the event of there not being a treaty, and we will be ready to continue to prosper as part of the British family of nations. So what is your backup plan? Are you prepared to effectively close that border? I don't think anyone's talking about the border being closed. We're talking about a, a stickier frontier that will be harder to traverse because the Schengen border code will be operating. But we're working very closely with the United Kingdom. The Deputy Chief Minister of Gibraltar chairs a no-negotiated outcome board with the Minister for Europe, Wendy Morton. And we've been preparing for that now for almost two years as we looked at the first cliff edge when there might have been a no-deal Brexit uh, in 2018. So we're 
pretty ready for that eventuality, although, of course, it won't be as comfortable as having a treaty relationship with the EU, which provides certainty for business and individuals going forward. In terms of the day-to-day -day life of people who live in Gibraltar, including the 450 members of the armed forces and their families, what's the downside of allowing Spain to police a European frontier in Gibraltar rather than sticking it at the Gibraltar-Spain border? Well, for us, it would just be absolutely unacceptable for every moment of every second of every day to think that there are Spanish law enforcement agents on the soil, the British soil of Gibraltar. Remember, this is not a relationship which is normal. This is a relationship that is infected and affected by 300 years of Spain seeking to recover the sovereignty of Gibraltar, which seceded in perpetuity under the Treaty of Utrecht. And therefore, that is unacceptable. In practical terms, it would be exactly the same. Um, as permitting the French gendarmerie to handle immigration at Heathrow. You might find that there is no difference. There's just a person there who checks your passport and lets you into the United Kingdom. But you wouldn't for one moment accept it, because, of course, it would be the most heinous interference with your sovereignty. There already is a precedent for this with the Latouque Treaty, where you have uh, British border control in France and, uh, and indeed in Belgium and, and vice versa. Absolutely. But remember that the difference is that France hasn't been claiming the sovereignty of St. Pancras Station for the past 300 years and doing so very aggressively and sieging St. Pancras and not permitting St. Pancras to operate around the world as it should. This is about much more than just the practicalities. This is about the underlying issue of British sovereignty being inviolate in respect of Gibraltar. And the most ferocious defenders of British sovereignty over Gibraltar will be the British Gibraltarian people of Gibraltar. And I can tell the European Commission now, we have been very respectful of them running up their mandate in the time that they needed in order to ensure that they did it in the way that they felt was appropriate. But we will not for one moment accept that they should think that they can trample over even the slightest, most minimal iota of British sovereignty as they go. So you've said there's no basis for agreement in this in framework set out by the EU. What happens now? Where do we go now? Well, as far as I'm concerned, this mandate is stillborn. Uh, the European Commission will have to do a lot of work to ensure that they can produce a treaty after you know, rethinking their mandate uh, that is faithful to the New Year's Eve agreement. But the European Union really needs to buck up its ideas and realize that there's no chance of this treaty actually happening unless what is finally proposed is in keeping with the New Year's Eve agreement. And if you can't reach an agreement, what does that mean for the people living in Gibraltar, including the armed forces community, who, who face a, a much stickier border, to use your words? Huge keys of ours, isn't it going to be? Well, it might be, but look, frankly, we've been used to that, even whilst we've been members of the European Union. Gibraltar is a huge positive influence in the economy of southern Spain. Uh, Gibraltarians and members of the armed forces go to Spain to spend money, not to work. Um, and a lot of people from southern Spain and of all European nationalities, 15,000 of them come to Gibraltar every day 
day to earn money. This is really an unfortunate return to the sort of politics that we have seen before. And I would have thought that the European Commission would have wanted to smooth these issues and to work imaginatively with us to ensure that they smooth the issues in keeping with the very difficult and careful balance that we did under the New Year's Eve agreement and not actually try and poke its finger in the eye of the United Kingdom and Gibraltar with suggestions that they know are just politically unacceptable and just jurisdictionally for us a total anathema. Gibraltar's Chief Minister Fabian Picardo. Well, listening to that with me was Professor of Defence Studies Michael Clark. Mike, Fabian Picardo, clearly very angry at the EU proposals. There's probably no great surprise in, in Brussels, is there, that, that he's angry? Where do you think this will go? Well, I think the uh, the giveaway, in a sense, was in the EU's own statement that you, uh, in your earlier part of the recording, when it was said that, well, this is a positive signal. It's not about sovereignty. It's not about symbolism. It's a positive signal. And the, the point is, it's, it's a bargaining chip. I mean, the EU must know that there is no chance that this would be accepted by Gibraltar or by the United Kingdom. This is one of the cases where the EU is shifting the goalposts, and it's doing it for a reason, because... Gibraltar is a bargaining chip against other issues. Is the other issue here that they're bargaining against Northern Ireland and the protocol? Sure is, yep. I mean, the point is that Britain has gone on to the offensive, Lord Frost. He writes about the, the fact that the protocol is, is fundamentally flawed. You can't live with it. It's, uh, it's, it's a terrible piece of, of uh, drafting. And, of course, he was the person who drafted it. Now, that is anathema to the European Union. They see this as simple, simply bad faith on Britain's part. And so it's not really surprising that they're finding a bargaining chip of their own. So as against our apparently unreasonable demands that we now change a protocol that we, we agreed to, they are now putting on the table a, a bargaining chip over Gibraltar. And you know, the EU always works by package deals. So one would expect if there is a reasonable outcome to the present uh, tension, they would be packaged together with a couple of other issues as well, probably. This is Zitrap. Now, where is your phone right now? Mine's right on the desk next to me. Yours is probably within reach. It's probably within reach all day. So what if someone could use that thing that's with you all day to listen in on whatever you're doing, to know wherever you are, and to know who you're talking to. What would they find out? Now imagine you're a human rights campaigner, a political or military leader, or a journalist investigating a shady regime. That's why there has been so much in newspapers around the world in the last few days about allegations linked to the Israeli-origined Pegasus spyware. Spyware has been stealing personal information from computers for years, but Pegasus has taken it to a whole new level. These days, it doesn't even need you to click a link from a message. Pegasus has been able to infect phones simply by placing a missed call on WhatsApp. You wouldn't know it, but the spyware now has the run of your phone. It's got more control over it than you do. Not only can Pegasus send back your messages, emails and photos, even if they're encrypted, it can spy on you in real time, streaming your microphone and camera, recording your phone calls and tracking your location. Now, we have known about the existence of Pegasus for several years. What's really new is some of the technical traces that have been found, but more importantly, the claims about how it's been used 
and its targets. 50,000 phone numbers are said to be on a leaked list seen by 16 media organisations, Amnesty International and the French investigators Forbidden Stories. The owners of these 50,000 phones are said to have been possible targets. Elle doit être un moment d'unité. The mobile number solidarité. of the French president Emmanuel Macron is just one of those on the list, along with 13 other heads of state and government around the world. There are human rights activists and lawyers on there. The numbers of 180 journalists appear, including the editor of the Financial Times. And the data suggests Pegasus may be linked to a murder which caused international outrage. It was at the Saudi consulate in Istanbul that Jamal Khashoggi met his brutal end. In the days before and after Jamal Khashoggi's killing in 2018, the data suggests his friends and family could have been targeted with Pegasus. The research team say just because a number is on the list, it doesn't mean it was actually targeted, but they analysed 67 phones from the database and they found traces of Pegasus on 37 of them. This elite and previously invisible spyware has now been seen. Well, the makers of the software, the private company NSO Group, say their technology is in no way associated with the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, and they have investigated those claims. Uh, it also says recent media reporting is full of wrong assumptions and uncorroborated theories, and that its software is only sold to vetted government agencies for the purposes of saving lives. Let's bring in here Professor Sir David Omond, former director of GCHQ. David, it sounds like an amazing tool in the right hands and a terrifying tool in the wrong hands. Yes, and I think that's true of intelligence methods generally. I mean, is it a surprise to anyone that some regimes in the Gulf and North Africa want to monitor their subjects and particularly activists and dissidents? And is it any surprise that they don't appear to have the kind of ethical and legal constraints that, for example, the United Kingdom and the major European democracies have? I take some of the hype with a pinch of salt. It, I suspect it's not quite as easy to infiltrate every Android or iPhone in the way in which it's described. And of course, this list, which has been leaked, the company has denied that this is a list of targets that is in any way associated with them. So we don't really know the status of the leaked list. But in a sense, it is confirmation that if you have countries that don't have the rule of law, that haven't got the right kind of independent regulation, and that don't apply restraint, then this is what is going to happen. Do you think this private technology is significantly better than what a UK government agency in GCHQ might be able to do at the moment? I don't know the honest answer to that. I rather doubt that it is. It's different. What is important about it is that it's available on a private market, and therefore it's not subject to the export controls, for example, that any British manufacturer of technical equipment would have to go through. One of the concerns about this is if this kind of technology becomes available to criminal hands, so much of our protections 
for the economy fall away, don't they? Yes, and it's it's a serious concern that uh, criminal groups uh, can uh, use, if they get hold of it, use this kind of technology to obtain personal information, which can then be used to defraud people. This area of criminality, cyber criminality, is rising extremely fast. We've got ransomware, for example, uh, running criminal groups uh, holding to ransom companies and individuals around the world. It's sort of epidemic at the moment, of course. There are serious implications for human rights workers and for journalists. And the answer to that is international pressure on governments to put in place the kind of rule of law and regulation that we have in the United Kingdom. Professor Sir David Oman, thanks for your time today. It's emerged this week that all but one of the Royal Navy's six destroyers are currently out of action. Only HMS Defender is fully operational. The other five are either undergoing maintenance or being fixed. The admission came from the Defence Procurement Minister, Jeremy Quinn, under questioning from the Commons Defence Committee Chair, Tobias Elwood. HMS Defender is now our only current operational Type 45. If that ship experiences propulsion problems which have... Uh, that we've seen across the Type 45 family, then our carrier group would have to be uh, forced to lean on a NATO ally uh, to uh, ensure that we have a destroyer protection. That really indicates, uh, bottom line, we need a bigger navy. Uh, we need to ensure that we, above all, we need to make certain, and this is the pith of your question, Chairman, that the ships we have are in good order and capable of doing the tasks that we set for them. Professor Michael Clark, uh, six ships that are meant to be a key part of projecting our power out of the world, five of them out of action. It, it, it's not a good look. Is it as concerning practically? Yes, I mean, it, it reflects what Tobias Elwood said there. It's a sign of a small navy. I mean, we've got six of these Type 45 destroyers, which are very powerful air defence destroyers. And, and one of the issues with them is that the, the engines that they've got don't perform well in extreme heat. And so they all need engine upgrades, which they will get. But when you've only got six of these very powerful Type 45s, uh, you only need a small irregularity like HMS Diamond suffering engine failure while it's at sea. And the whole thing looks pretty bad. But in the light of the integrated review, when we say we'll have a bigger presence around the world, the idea that we can only have one of our destroyers makes us look um, fairly toothless. That bigger presence around the world that the government talks about, global Britain. Uh, but of course, our ambitions may stretch a little further beyond the boundaries of our planet. The MOD is to publish a space strategy in the next few months. Already, it's working on international plans to keep a closer eye on the extraterrestrial activities of rival nations. The UK could join Australia in agreeing to host new radar stations, which are part of a US plan to set up a new deep space monitoring system. The Chief of the Air Staff, Air Chief Marshal Sir Mike Wigston, has been in the US for talks on the plan. We're certainly very interested. If you recall when the integrated review was announced earlier this year, space domain awareness, as it's called, understanding what's, what's happening in this, in this exciting new domain, is, uh, is the number one priority. It will enable us to, as I say, get a good picture of what is going on and if necessary, be ready to protect our critical interests in space. So 
how vulnerable are we in space and what should we be doing to protect ourselves? Dr. Mark Hilborn, who's a lecturer in conflict and security in the Department of Defence Studies at King's College London, recently gave evidence to MPs on these questions. And he told me, while the world's military powers are increasingly reliant on space, it is very poorly defended. The laws governing activity in space are relatively old um, and a little bit vague. And I think, you know, they were probably intentionally designed to be that way. We have a, a series of treaties that were signed in the late 60s, early 1970s. So they forbid um, hostile military activity, but there's not very specific about what that might mean. Well, it doesn't ban anything in particular apart from weapons of mass destruction. So there is this gray zone, which, of course, lawyers have a you know field day with um, about what is and what is not actually prohibited in space. And, and then there's the question of who actually polices those rules. I mean, do we need something like a, a Geneva Convention or alliances like NATO for space? If we're thinking about alliances, well, we already have, for instance, the Five Eyes, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, US and the UK. They work together both in the areas of intelligence, but also sharing space data, space intelligence as well. So there's quite a well-established network there. And that's probably a way of uh, assuring and uh, making your, your space assets resilient. You've got allies in space. What would you say the biggest threat is to Western space interests at the moment? I suppose it's really looking at some of the rising powers in space and what they might be able to get up to. So we're aware that China and Russia have counter space programs. But there's many other threats that are maybe not malevolent, things like space debris. If we come back and look at the intentional hazards, there are effectively two categories, one which is sort of interfering with the communications of the other satellite, and the, the, the other is physical destruction. Which of those is realistically the greater threat at this stage. A lot of attention is paid to what we call direct descent anti-satellite missiles. Uh, we see these occasional tests, and of course those are quite spectacular, and that concerns us a lot. I think you know what you are alluding to is probably more likely the non-kinetic threats of either uh, jamming the GPS signal, jamming communications to or from the satellite, or interfering in some way that you change the data coming down from that satellite to be misinformation effectively. So those are probably more likely um, and they're, they're harder to attribute. As rival nations also become more reliant on space and, and, and get more capability from it, is there an element of, of, of the space domain actually becoming one of mutually assured destruction? That if, if any military starts working offensively in space, they're going to actually threaten their own capabilities at the same time. I think that's absolutely true. I, th I think uh, at the moment there's a real asymmetric advantage to the US. They have so much more in space than anybody else. But as China grows, as, as other states grow and they increase their reliance on space, they're going to be much more hesitant about starting, let's call it a shooting war in space, because the more debris flying around, the more threat there is to your own space assets. So, and for that reason, I think it's, as we just discussed, the non-kinetic forms will be much more prevalent and, I guess, insidious that, you know, they're harder to attribute. We don't know where that, you know, if it's a cyber attack on our space infrastructure, we don't necessarily know where that's come from. If a state, another state is able to, say, undermine our confidence in the data that we're getting, that might be sufficient rather than blasting it all into pieces. It's undermining that confidence we have in 
what is an absolutely critical function. Might an attack on space-based systems be the first phase of a future war, though? Is it, is, is, is it now realistically part of the battlefield? Well, it could be considered quite attractive that you're, you're basically blinding your opponent by taking out space assets, and they can't communicate, they can't see, we'd be deaf, dumb, and blind, essentially. So it makes it a very lucrative target in that respect. But nonetheless, I think, first of all, we'd know probably something is happening. Um, if, if they were those kind of physical attacks, we'd know where it comes from, so they'd be highly escalatory. And there's also, particularly with the U.S. and Western states, is what we might call the nuclear entanglement factor, that uh, a number of high-value satellites are used for both conventional military um, functions, but also nuclear attacks, or nuclear command, for instance. So an attack on one of those could be seen or could be interpreted as a preliminary step to a nuclear strike and again be very escalatory. So I think because there's such reliance on space systems um, and such sensitivity that an attack on them, you know, states will have to consider and weigh that very, very carefully if they were to, if their opening gambit, let's say, was an attack on another's space systems. So very attractive, but also quite a sensitive and therefore escalatory move, I think. Dr. Mark Hilborn from King's College London. Professor Michael Clark, I mean, given the increasing importance of space to your overall military power, should part of the UK's space strategy be to become a bigger player in space? We want the ability to launch our own satellites, not to be dependent on commercial launches from other countries, which are entirely possible these days, and to launch our own satellites and to have more satellites than we really need so that there's a degree of redundancy and a degree of resilience. But we're never going to be one of the big players in space. We're not going to create a space station. We're not going to go for a moonshot. And, you know, what, what we do in terms of, of uh, Mars rovers is just something that we, we do for the sake of science, not for the sake of military exploitation. So our strategy is really one of defending our assets in space rather than creating new assets or being a big player amongst those who are about on the verge of, of exploiting space in a pretty big way. Thank you, Mike. Finally, today, we look back at the life of squadron leader Lawrence Goodman, nicknamed Benny after the legendary big band leader. A bomber pilot with the RAF Stambusters Squadron, he died this week at the age of 100. Aside from a 24-year career with the Air Force, he devoted a lot of time to highlighting the role that was played by Jewish personnel during the war. Edward Sharman is from the RAF Museum and spent time with Benny Goodman, including a celebration of his 100th birthday last year. Benny had an incredibly distinguished career with the Royal Air Force. He joined at the age of 18 in 1939 and was sent over to Canada to do his flying training. He was such a natural pilot that they actually kept him on to become a flying instructor. And it was only when he requested a transfer back to the UK to join operational service that he was posted with 617 Squadron. And he was the only pilot on the squadron who was posted there without any operational experience. Not only that, he was a Jewish pilot. So as a Jewish pilot in Bomber Command, his risks were infinitely greater. If he was shot down, it was very unlikely that he would have joined a prisoner of war camp. I mean, clearly the Royal Air Force meant so much to him because compulsorily demobbed at the end of the war and then rejoined the RAF and stayed until the 60s. Yeah, it was a huge part of his life. I mean, he was even awarded the Chevalier de Legion d'Honneur by the French government. He flew 22 different aircraft types. And actually, I remember walking through the museum with him on one occasion 
and it was a you know it was a who's who of what he'd flown. He was like, I flew this one, I flew this one, I flew this one. All the way through his life, even after he left the RAF, he would give talks and promote the Air Force. And he joined our Hidden Heroes program in 2018 as one of the veterans who helped us launch that. And whenever we asked him to do anything to support, he would always give up his time and do anything for the Air Force. It was a huge part of his life. That Hidden Heroes project specifically, he, he dedicated a lot of time to fighting anti-Semitism, the, the Jewish Hidden Heroes project. Yes, so 21,000 Jews actually flew as part of the Royal Air Force in the Second World War, which was 6% of the overall population. And Benny was really keen in what the Hidden Heroes programme was doing and sharing that story, which was portraying the Jews not just as victims, but fighting back. And like I said, you know, he knew the risks. He was given the opportunity when he joined the Air Force of not having his religion on his dog tags, and he declined that. And he attended every event we did regarding the Hidden Heroes and spoke at them wherever possible. You got to, to show him his own logbook, which is in your collection. I mean, that must have been a, a pretty special moment for both of you. I mean, it, it was brilliant. And actually, one of the things that made me laugh, and it is a testament to Benny's character. So not only on that day at 99 did he refuse to have a wheelchair and would walk everywhere, and he still lived on his own, as he did right up until the end, but also he took the time to apologise to me because his logbook was slightly water damaged. And he said, yes, that's when I got shot down in the Atlantic and it got a bit wet, so sorry it's all stained. I will remember him as one of the nicest, kindest people I've had the pleasure of meeting across my career, working with many, many veterans. He was so humble and he always used to question why he was guest of honour at events and, and he would say, but I didn't do anything special. I did what anyone else would have done at the time. And he genuinely believed that and he saw the best in everyone and he will be greatly missed. Edward Charman from the RAF Museum, remembering squadron leader Lawrence Benny Goodman. And that is all for this week. My thanks to Professor Michael Clark and to all of our guests. You can keep in touch with us on Twitter. We are at BFBS SITREP and at bfbs.com forward slash SITREP. There you can listen back to past programmes and also find links to subscribe to the podcast. But for now, though, from me, James Hurst, thank you for listening. Bye bye.